my weblog, and I'll be posting where the place is. Yeah, and what's going on. It's got links to a lot of things. Okay, welcome everyone. We're ready with our sutta study. Just waiting for Michael to show up. In one minute, we will be starting on the Vamika Sutta. Okay, so here we are. Ready to look at the Vamika Sutta. And it's seven, so let's make sure the sound is working. Okay, the sound is working. <coughs> So the Vamika Sutta, number 23, is the simile of the anthill, Sutta on the anthill. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Evam me sutam me kam samayam magava Savatiyam viharati jetavane anathapindikasa arame Tenako panasamayena ayasma kumara kasapo Anhavane viharati atago anyatara devata Abhikanta yarati abhikanta vamnana Kevalakapam jedava andavanam obhasitva Yena yasma kumarakasapo denupasankami Upasankami tvai Sadevata yasmantam kumara kasapam metadavocha Bhikkhu bhikkhu ayam vamliko ratim dumayati Iva panchalati brahmano eva maha Abhikana sumeda satanadayati Abhikananto sumedo sattamadaya Adasalanding langi banante ti brahmano eva maha Ukkipalanding abhikarna sumedo sattamadaya Abhikananto sumedo sattamadaya Andasaundamayakam Uddhamayika Dandeti Brahmano eva maha Ukkipa Uddhamayikam Abhikanasumedasattamadayati Abhikanantosumedasattamadayati Andasavida patam vita pato patanteti Brahmano eva maha ukkipadita patam Abhikanasumedasattamadayati Abhikanantosumedasattamadayati Andasachangavaram changavaro vandanteti Brahmano eva maha ukkipachangavaram Abhikanasumedasantam adayati Abhikanantosumedasattam adayati Andasakummangummo vandanteti Brahmano eva maha Ukkipakummam abhikkhanasumeda sattamadayati Abhikkhanantosumeda sattamadayati Andasasisunam ansisunapadanteti Pramano eva maha ukkipasisunam Abhikkhanasumeda sattamadayati Abhikkhananto sumedo sattamadaya 
Brahmanoevamahatitatunagomanangangatisi Nantam Anyatra Achayena yena bhagavate nupasankami Upasankami tva bhagavantam nabhivaditva Ekamantam nisidi ekamantam nisino Kovayasma kumarakasapo bhagavantam etadavocha Imam bante rating nanyatara devata Gatatiya abhikanda na kevala kapamanda vanam Ekamantam tita ko bante sa devatam Itawa panasutvati damavocha bante sahurivata Idamvatva tatevantarayi konukovante Vamiko karatindu mayana kadiva pajalana Kobramano kosumedo kim satam kim Abhikaranam kalangi ka undumai ka kodvigapato Tingjangavarango kumoka asisuna Kamamsapesa pesigona goti Vamikoti Mata peti kasambhavasa udana kumasuvajayasa Anichujadana parimandana vedana vidam sanadamasa Yanko bhikkha vivakamante anam Yanko bhikkurattim anuvichakedva anuvicharitva Divakamante payojeti kayena vachaya manasa Ayam divapajalana Brahmanoti kubhikkutatagatasetana divapjanam narahato samasambuddhasa 
Sumedotiko bikuse kase tam bikuno adiwatanam. Satantiko bikku ariyai tam panyaya adiwatanam. Abhikanantiko bikku viriyaram basi tam adiwatanam. Langitiko bikku avichaye tam adiwatanam. Uki palangim pajahavicham abhikana sumeda sattam adayatiyayangita sato. Udmayaikatiko bhikkhu koduhayasaisantam adivachanam uki pa udmayakam pajah. Ukipa undumayikang pajahakodu payasam Abhikarna sumeda satang adayati ayang etasato Dvidapato tipikumiku inovichikitayatang adivacharam Ukipa dvidapatang pajahavichikitayam Abhikana sumeda satam madayati ayamitasayato Changararantiko bhikkhu panchanatetam nivarnanam adivachanam Sariyatidam kamachanda nivaranasa vayapadam nivaranasa Tinamidani varanasa ujjaja sukhutchai ujjjani varanasa Vichikichani varanasa ukipachanga varan Pajahanchani varane abhikhana sumedasa Satamadayati ayametasa ato Kumotiko bhikkhu panchanetam padana khandanam adivachanam Seyatayam rupa padana khandasa vedana padana khandasa Sanyam padana khandasa sangharu padana khandasa Vinyanu padana khandasa ukipa kumman pajarabhanju padana khande Abhikana sumeda sattam adayati ayametasa ato Asisunatiko bhikkhu panchane dhankamagunanam vachanam Chaku vinyayanam rupanam vittanam kantanam Manapanam viyarupanam kamupasam vittanam Rajaniyanam sota vinyayanam sadhanam pe Gana vinyayanam gandhanam pe jirma vinyayanam rasasanam pe Kaya vinyayanam portabhanam itanam gandhanam Manapanam piyalpanam kamupasam itanam rajaniyanam Ukkipasisunam pajakaram chakamakune Abhikana sumeda sattam madayati ayameta sarto Mangsapesiti kobikunandirakasetam nadivachanam Ukkipamangsapesing pajakanandirakam Abhikana sumeda sattam madayati ayameta sarto Nagotiko bhikkhu girna savaisetam bhikkhu navadivachanam Tittatutnago managam gattesi Namokarohi nagasati ayamitasatoti Idamavocha bhagavata manohayasmakumarakasapo Bhagavato Bhāsitam Abhinandaiti So we finished the whole sutta in 14 minutes. It's pretty quick, pretty short one. It's a short one. I'm still on the Alambhavit Padma Sutta. I'm going to the Alambhavit Sutta. Yeah, it's it.
So am I still doing all the English reading? There's some new people. Faces I don't recognize. Yeah, yes, is this the night like for that? You live in Winnipeg? Uh, no, no. Do you have any for a long time? Mm -hmm. Meditation at least once a week. So. Wonderful. It's good Thank to see you. Everyone. We'll be doing meditation after the chanting. After we're finished with the sutta. All right, so tonight we're looking at the Vamika Sutta, number 23 in the Vichin Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Sawati in Jeta's Grove, Anatapindika's Park. Now on that occasion, the Venerable Kumara Kasapa was living in the Blind Man's Grove. <coughs> Kumara, his name was Kumara because he was the son of King Pasenadi. He was adopted by Pasenadi. He was born of a woman who, not knowing she was pregnant, had gone forth as a bhikkhuni after having conceived him. At the time the sutta was delivered, he was still a seka, so he was still an ordinary person. He was, um, he was raised by the king, and then when, uh, when he came of age, he went forth as a monk. Now the story, does anyone know the story of Kumara Kasapa? A little. I, I mm -hmm. read the Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the story of the two deer? I don't know. Yes, you do. The two deer herds. It's a good story. Once upon a time, once upon a time, there was a... Uh, a bhikkhuni, and she was staying with Devadatta, and um, turns out she was pregnant, and so she went to Devadatta, and or they brought the, the the other. I can't remember what happened with her husband. Maybe he died, or maybe she ran away from him. And um, the bhikkhunis saw that she was getting fat and brought her to Devadatta. And Devadatta thought to himself, if people find out that we got a bhikkhuni who's pregnant, that's a real problem. And so without investigating, he threw her out. He said, uh, you're no longer a bhikkhuni. Having obviously had sexual intercourse, you're no longer a bhikkhuni. And she protested and he wouldn't hear it. He just kicked her out. So she thought to herself, what did she think to herself? She thought to herself, I didn't ordain under Devadatta, I ordained under the Buddha. So she went to find the Buddha. And the Buddha shows the difference between the two, two teachers, right? The Buddha, he investigated first. He said, uh, in fact, he didn't investigate. He knew the truth, obviously, because he's omniscient. But um, this is the thing about the, the Buddha did this on several occasions. He wouldn't just say, she was she conceived of a baby before she ordained because then people will still be suspicious. They'll say, you know, he's just he's just defending himself. So he didn't say anything. He said, Call Upali. Call Upali. Upali is the head of the Vinaya. And so Upali came and Upali he said, Upali, you have to be the judge of whether this Bikuni uh, conceived had, had sexual intercourse before she was ordained or after she was ordained. And then Upali, I can't remember if the Buddha called or Upali called, probably the Buddha called Pasenadi, Visaka, and I think Anattapindika as well, to be witnesses. And the king came for this. He called the king down and he called uh, Anattapindika and Visaka. And they, he had her, he had them, you see, Upali put Visaka in charge of, of, of deciding the, uh, the case, and they put a curtain up. And they took the woman inside and they did some kind of test or whatever and they found out exactly the date that she conceived and it was well before she had ordained. And as a result, they they cleared her of it and allowed her to stay as a bhikkhuni. And then the baby was born and there was, um, he was making lots of noise and so King Pasenadi took him. Anyway, it's kind of off, off topic. We don't have to go deep into that. But it's a neat story because the Buddha used it as an opportunity to tell the... Uh, can't, this, the Jataka of the Banyan deer, I can't remember the Pali action, actually. There was the same thing, a, a deer 
who was with a child, a deer who was pregnant. Um, so he goes, what happened is there was this king, and he went around killing all the deer. And he would he loved he loved to go hunting deer, and he loved to eat because he loved to eat venison, he loved to eat deer meat. And so he would gather up all this all the people in the in the city, and uh, force them to go on hunts with him. Because so they would have to go and thresh out and beat sticks and chase all the deer out, and then he would get to shoot the deer. And this made it difficult for all the townspeople to do their work. So they thought of a scheme. They built a park with walls around it, and they chased all the deer into the park. And they said to the king, now you can go and hunt whenever you want. And... Um, So the king, and I can't remember how the story goes exactly, but the, uh, so then the king would go in there and he would, he would shoot all the deer, and I think the deer came to him or someone came to him and somehow it came to him that uh, when he did this, often they wouldn't get killed, they would get hurt, and it was inhumane. So then, um, right, that's it, the deer came up with this. They said, look, this is crazy. We can't get out of this place. We're all going to die anyway, or, or he's going he's gonna to keep killing us. So, uh, But if we let him hunt us, then we're going to face sometimes the arrow hits you in the leg, sometimes you don't die from it, and it's very painful. So, so, what if, so what if we have a system where we draw lots and everybody takes a turn and they go willingly to be killed? And so they went to the king with their proposal. The, 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 he agreed to it. They might have had an interpreter. <laughs> interpreter. Squirrel. And... Um, <laughs> The, the king agreed to it, and so he just had the butcher go down every day and and kill him a deer. But he he saw two deer, because there were two herds of deer, and he saw the two heads of the deer, heads of the herds, and they were beautiful. They had uh, golden colored uh, fur, and they were just handsome, special looking deer. And he said those two deer are exempt. No one is to kill those two deer. They went away. So this continued for some time until this woman's, uh, sorry, this female deer's uh, turn came up. And she went to the head of her herd and said, look, I've got a baby. Can I be exempt? And when the baby is, um, when the baby is born, I will take my turn. And he said, no, you must take your turn. There's no excuses. It's your turn now. You must take your turn no matter what. And so she leaves and she goes to the head of the other herd and asks him and tells him and he, and Looks at she says, look, I'm, I'm, this is my baby. If I die, he dies as well, or it dies as well. Please let me pass my turn up, and uh, I promise I will take my turn uh, once the baby is 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 born. And the, the head of the deer. It's not fair that I, you know, because what he what she's asking him to do is to find someone to take her place, and he said that's not fair. I can't find someone to take her place. She, he says to her, okay, you go back. You don't worry. And he goes himself, and he puts his head down on the block to be killed. And the butcher looks, and he sees this the deer there, and he says, I'm not allowed to kill this deer. And he says, no, no, you're not, I'm not allowed to kill you. He says, sorry, it's my turn. And so he goes to the king, and the king comes back and says, look, I've exempted you from, from being killed. And you go, shoo, shoo, you're not to be killed. And the deer says, well, what about all the rest of my, the rest of the people? How can I let them, how can I let them be killed? How can I find someone else to take my place? They're living beings as well. And, he's, and the king was moved by this. As he told him the story, I think, of the, of the female deer. And the king said, fine, I, I, I spare all, all deer. I don't need to kill deer anymore. I spare all deer. And he said, well, what about all the other animals in the forest? I'm going to let them get killed. Anyway, eventually he gets the king to keep the five precepts. It's a Jataka story. It's very famous. So now you know it. And that's the story of Kumara Kasapa, because he was the he was the deer he was the baby deer at the time I think and he was also the baby in this Bikuni's uh, stomach who was pregnant when she was in, pregnant got pregnant before she ordained and didn't realize it staying in blind man's grove okay next paragraph then when the night was well advanced a certain deity of beautiful appearance who illuminated the whole of blind man's grove approached the venerable Kumara Kasapa and stood at one side. So standing, the deity said to him, Biku, Biku, this anthill fumes by night and flames by day. Thus spoke the Brahman. 
According to M.A., the deity was a non-returner living in the pure world. The members of a group of five fellow monks. Okay. Um, this is the same Brahma who spurred on Bahya in the Bahya Sutta. You know, the Bahya Sutta, Dite Dita Matang Bhavisati. The Buddha taught. Uh, so there were these five monks, again, with the stories, these five monks who, at the end of um, the dispensation of Buddha Kasapa, they went up to this mountaintop and they, with a ladder, they took a ladder up onto this ledge and then they threw the ladder down so they had no way to get down from the mountain. It was either become enlightened or pass away as ordinary worldlings because the, the, the religion was becoming corrupt and all the monks were neglecting their duties and so they didn't want to mix with all these people, these bad monks, and so they went off into the forest and stayed by themselves. And uh, one of them became an arahant, I think, and another one became an anagami, and I think the other three um, passed away or something like that. Maybe two of them became anagami. But there's at least Bahia and Kumarakasapa. These two guys didn't get anything out of it and died as ordinary worldlings. And both of them came back as monks and were uh, admonished by this same Brahma. Just, that's what the commentary says. Anyway. So the, he's talking about an anthill, the anthill that fumes by day and flame, fumes by night and flames by day. We're going to get an explanation of what these, these similes mean at the end. So yeah, let's just read through them. Thus spoke the Brahmin, delve with a knife, thou wise one. Delving with a knife, the wise one saw a bar, a bar, O venerable sir. Thus spoke the Brahmin, throw out the bar, delve with a knife, O wise one, thou wise one. Delving with a knife, the wise one saw a toad, a toad, O venerable sir. Thus spoke the Brahmin, throw out the toad, delve with a knife, thou wise one. Delving with the knife, the wise one saw a fork, a fork, O venerable sir. Thus spoke the Brahmin, throw out the fork, delve with the knife, the wise one. <laughs> Delving with the knife, the wise one saw a sieve, a sieve, O venerable sir. And so, let's see, let's just go to... He delving with the knife, he saw a tortoise, he saw a butcher's, block, butcher's knife and block, a piece of meat, a Naga serpent. Thus spoke the Brahmin, leave the Naga serpent, do not harm the Naga serpent. Honor the Naga serpent. Okay, so let's recap. He saw all these things digging in an, in an anthill. It's really a strange sort of simile, but it's kind of how things went in the in the, those times. They had these these kind of um, well similes. You know, they had uh, stories that were what is the word uh, metaphoric? No, it's the allegories. Allegorical is that what it is? Yeah, alle mm -hmm. allegories. Right, the meaning of the deity is it's an allegory for uh, the practice leading to enlightenment. Now his his point in doing this is he wants to prod Kumara Kasaba along who he thinks is maybe taking too long or he just wants to help him and uh, get him to go and find a teaching. Maybe he wasn't going to the Buddha enough or he hadn't gotten enough instruction from the Buddha so this Anagami Brahman, Brahma wanted to encourage him to go to see the Buddha so he gave him some questions to ask the Buddha. It became actually quite a famous sutta. This one is a subject of uh, several talks. I think um, I know Mahasi Sayada has a book on the Vamika Sutta. So we're going to now explain the imagery of the knife, the bar, the toad. Right, the knife? No. Right. So yeah, the, the, the anthill, the flaming, the fuming, the knife, the Brahmin and the wise one and the knife, and then the bar, the toad, the fork, the sieve, and the tortoise, the butcher's knife, the piece of meat, and the naga serpent. So let me go up a little bit. We did that one. Oh, we did. Bhikkhu, you should go to the Blessed One and ask him about this riddle. As the Blessed One tells you, so should you remember it. Bhikkhu, other than other than the Tathagata or disciple of the Tathagata, or one who has learned it from them, I see no one in this world with its gods, its Madas, its Brahmas, and this generation with its recluses and Brahmins. Its princes, and, its princes and people whose explanation of this riddle might satisfy the mind. Another thing we have to understand about Brahma, about Anagamis, is they're living in, in heavenly realms for what millions of years or in, incredible amounts of time. So they have a lot deeper 
uh, trains of thought than we do, which is probably one of the reasons why this is such a weird sort of uh, weird, so, so weird to us, or it's weird to me anyway, this kind of, uh, way, of way of speaking. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's um, exemplary of the way that angels also talk. If you notice how angels, when they go to the Buddha, they have a lot of strange questions as well, or it's not strange, but it's kind of um, sort of mysterious, or, or um, I don't know what the word is, flowery speech, and with all these sorts of uh, deep, uh, complex allegories and ideas. But here he's just giving—he's actually just giving a set of defilements and obstacles in the practice that one has to come up against. So he says, go to the Buddha, the Buddha will answer this way. That is what it was said by the deity, who thereupon, thereupon vanished at once. Then when the night was over, the venerable Kumara Kasapa went to the Blessed One. After paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and told the Blessed One what had occurred. Then he asked, Venerable Sir, what is the anthill? What is the fuming by night? What is the flaming by day? Who is the Brahman? Who is the wise one? What is the knife? What is the delving? What, what is the bar? What is the toad? What is the fork? What is the sieve? What is the toad? What is, is it? Who is the Brahman? Who the wise one? What the knife? What is the knife? What the delving? That's, what does that mean? What the knife? People what talk the, like that. Oh. You only need this once. Okay. What the fork? What the sieve? What the tortoise? What the butcher's knife and block? What the piece of meat? What the Naga serpent? Bhikkhu, the anthill is a symbol for this body made of material form, consisting of the four great elements, procreated by a mother and father, built up out of boiled rice and porridge, and subject to impermanence, to being worn and rubbed away, to dissolution and disintegration. Let's not worry about that one. Uh, okay, so the anthill is the body, the body being the object of our contemplation. Our meditation is uh, centered and focused and um, initiated based on the body. Where do you, how do you start meditating? It, it's almost too obvious, and, and it seems obvious when you hear it, but it's something that we have to be constantly reminded of. Where is your mind most of the time? It's not with the body. Most of the time the mind is somewhere else. Our meditation comes when we bring our minds back to the body, back to ourselves, being aware of some aspect of the body. Within this, the Buddha said, Something like that. Within this, right, the six-foot body, six-foot by two-foot body, is the beginning of the world and the end of the world. <coughs> Everything is to be found in this body because all of our experience is is based on the body. Seeing is only as far as the eye. Hearing is only as far as the ear. Smelling is at the nose. Tasting, feeling, and thinking. It's all within the body. So our exploration, our spiritual exploration, has to begin at the body. And the Buddha starts by explaining what is the body. The body is not an entity. The body is not exactly an organism, it's uh, an aggregate or a, a construct that consists of the four great elements. And in, in the sense of the four great elements, uh, the four great elements imply that the body is not actually a thing. One of the most important insights in the meditation practice is to see that the body is not a six-foot by two-foot thing after all. Body is experience. So when you're sitting here, you feel the floor or you feel the cushion. That feeling is body. You feel hot or you feel cold. That, that feeling of hot, heat and cold is body. The stiffness in the back, that arises and ceases. You feel that in the moment. When your mind goes there, there's an experience of stiffness. These are the four elements. It means... Uh, the four aspects of physical experience. When you see, when you look around and you see the body, this is not actually the body, this is seeing. This is something that occurs in the mind. Seeing goes on in the brain and in the mind. What is actually body is the physical experience. 
So when you feel heat or cold, hard, soft, stiff, or flaccid. And uh, it's procreated by mother and father, so it's formed. The body is not something that is always there. It's not an entity. It's not a self. It's built up out of boiled rice and porridge. So all of the body, the body is, uh, it all just comes from food. Something to think about that actually our body entirely is made up of our food. We are literally, what we eat, we are our food. Subject to impermanence, the body is subject to change. It gets old, it gets sick, it dies, being worn and rubbed away. R rubbed away, I think, comes from a play on the word rupa. Rupa. The word rupa means that which is worn and rubbed away or something. Subject to dissolution and disintegration. So the body body is also something that we cling to very strongly. We cling to ourselves. We cling to the beauty. We cling to the, the um, energy, the uh, strength of the body. And we cling to the pleasure that comes from the body. We cling to these things thinking that they're going to somehow make us happy. And uh, one, of the, one of the most important insights is to see that the body is actually something not worth clinging to, something that when clung to causes only dissatisfaction, addiction, and eventual disappointment when you don't get what you want. Okay, next paragraph. Go one paragraph at a time. What one thinks and ponders by night based upon one's actions during the day is the fuming by night. So we have an anthill that's actually burning. Um, and anthill, I think the word should actually be termite mound. Because an anthill is just a thing of dirt. If you know anything about the difference, they're quite different. And an anthill is is a bunch of dirt that the ants throw up. But a termite mound can be huge, and they actually um, I'm not sure if they can burn. They're actually made of dirt, so they shouldn't burn either. But um, somehow there's smoke and fire coming out of this anthill, this termite mound. And so the uh, at night it it fumes, and by day it flames. This is an excellent, this is probably one of the main reasons why this simile is so well remembered, is because it's very similar to us. During the day we flame, acting, fighting, chasing, in, uh, striving, becoming, doing, upholding with, uh, upholding our ourselves and, and our ego and our idea, our identity and so on. So much flaming and, and, and uh, energy and, and activity. And then by night we fume. By night we remember all the bad things people did to us and all the bad things that happened to us and all the good things that happened to us and all the good things we're going to do tomorrow and all of our plans and our dreams and we write down and we stay up all night sometimes stressing and worrying and, and planning and scheming and regretting and wishing and hoping and so on. We fume by night. So this is the end of fuming by night is this uh, the, the activity at night that stops us from stay, from sleeping. And it's our dreams as well. The reason why we dream is because of all this uh, flame by day that's, that's put out at night, but it fumes all night. The actions... The actions one undertakes during the day by body, speech, and mind, after thinking and pondering by night, is the flaming by day. Okay, so those are the two. Next one. The, Bra the Brahman is a symbol for the Tathagata, accomplished and fully enlightened. The wise one is a symbol for a bhikkhu in higher training. The knife is a symbol for noble wisdom. The delving is a symbol for the arousing of energy. The higher training, higher training here refers to um, it may refer to the training of a sotapanna, but it definitely refers to the training that leads to enlightenment. So adisila, adisamadi, adipanya, which means not just ordinary um, conventional morality, conventional concentration, conventional wisdom. It's uh, the training to become free from suffering. It may also refer to the training of specifically a sotapanna and higher, because Marakasava, I think, was a sotapanna at this point, at least. So it's it's the three trainings of morality means keeping the mind from wandering, uh, concentration, the fixed and focused, 
attention of the mind and wisdom, the understanding of things as they are. The knife is the symbol for noble wisdom, means the four noble truths, suffering, the cause of suffering. Or it actually might refer to refer to vipassana insight, right? Because the knife is this thing that's used to cut to to, to dig. So we're using he's using this knife to dig into the anthill. It means even our meditation practice, when we sit and we meditate and we reflect and we recognize things as they are, every moment that we're recognizing things as they are is a digging. It's the, this cultivation of wisdom, of clear understanding, as we become clearer and clearer in our understanding of things as they are. Delving is the delving is the effort that we put in to the practice. Effort to cultivate wholesome states, effort to maintain wholesome states, effort to prevent unwholesome states from arising, and effort to remove unwholesome states that have already arisen. The bar is a symbol for ignorance. Throw out the bar, abandon ignorance. <coughs> Delve with a knife, thou wise one. This is the meaning. Just as a bar across the entrance to a city prevents people from entering it, so ignorance prevents people from attaining Nibbana. It's interesting that it should come first because it's actually, ignorance is actually the highest, uh, the, the last of the defilements to disappear. And nobody but an Arahant is free from, from ignorance. But it may be referring to the very beginning ignorance of, uh, that, has wrong, that has wrong view. So ignorance of um, the truth of reality, the truth of non-self. Still, ignorance is actually the, the, the number one. But uh, it could be referring to views. It could be just referring to one's uh, intellectual ignorance. So it's the first thing to go. The toad is a symbol for anger and irritation. Throw out the toad, abandon anger and irritation. Delve with a knife, thou wise one. This is the meaning. So once um, once wrong view is gone, the reason why I say this is because once wrong view is gone, there still is anger and irritation and lots of other things. Um, even though one knows from the point of view of, uh, from an intellectual point of view, that they're wrong. One has come to the right view and right understanding that anger and irritation and so on are wrong, but one still has them. Anyway, the toad, the toad is something that's ugly. People who are anger and angry and irritated are ugly by their very nature, and it leads to ugliness both in this life. It leads to sickness and so on. It leads to mottled skin and uh, an unpleasant complexion, and in the next life, it leads one to uh, to become ugly. Actually, people who are angry and get angry at people are sick and ugly and unpleasant to look at, like toads. The fork is a symbol for doubt. Throw out the fork, abandon doubt. Delve with a knife, thou wise one. This is the meaning. The fork because it's a, it's a duida bata, which means a, a, something that goes in two directions, like a fork. So the fork, duida means um, dual, and bata means um, way or, or path. So uh, the two paths is doubt. The Advidipata is also, I guess, Dveda, sorry, Dveda Pata, the forked path, and obviously a symbol for doubt. But uh, I think he's right to say a fork, because how are you going to find a forked path in the... How are you going to throw out a forked path? No, it's got to be something that goes in two directions, which is probably a, a fork. It's a symbol doubt, because doubt stops you from continuing on the path. Doubt is a hindrance is the, the greatest hindrance because it stops you completely from going either one way or the other. The reason why it's a dual path is because you, you're no longer able to go. You can't go down two paths at once. It's a symbol for indecision that stops you from going. When you have doubt in something, whether it be a meditation practice or a teacher or a, or a uh, teaching, it's uh, something that stops you and even sends you on the wrong path because eventually the doubt it's so strong that you wind up just choosing a path um, without adequate wisdom and understanding and often are, actually because of the doubt, tend to choose the wrong path, tend to choose a path for the wrong reasons without working out the doubt. See, the path is actually working through the doubt and understanding the doubt and letting go of the doubt. When, people, when meditators come and they have doubt about the meditation, we have them meditate on the doubt, see the doubt as it is, and once they've worked out the doubt, they've worked out the 
the problem, they've accomplished the goal of the meditation. There's in fact nothing more that you need to do. The sieve is a symbol for the five hindrances, namely the hindrance of sensual desire, the hindrance of ill will, the hindrance of sloth and torpor, the hindrance of restlessness and remorse, and the hindrance of doubt. Throughout the sieve, abandon the five hindrances. Delve with the knife, thou wise one. This is the meaning. So the hindrances are like a sieve, I think, because um, they, they allow your concentration to slip away. They, uh, they detract from one's concentration, from one's ability to see things clearly. When you have sensual desire, it's like a, a, a pot of water, um, a pool of water with dye in it. You can't see through it because of the sensual desire. You're like intoxicated. Um, cloudy and so on. The hindrance of ill will is like a boiling pot of water. You can't see through it because it's boiling up. The hindrance of sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor is like a muddy, like muddy water. And so restlessness, uh, remorse is like a, a whirlpool, a water that is wave that has waves on it. It is all stirred up, and therefore you can't see anything. And doubt is like cloudy water, I think, I can't remember, and also can't see through. The hindrances stop us from um, seeing things as they are. The, the, the meaning of the word hindrances is there are hindrance to concentration and wisdom. When you have sloth and torpor, you don't see clearly. When you have restlessness, you don't see clearly. When you have doubt, you can't ever see clearly. So abandoning the five hindrances, A necessary aspect, necessary part of the path. It's really the essence of finding success on the path is dealing with and overcoming the five hindrances. The tortoise is a symbol for the five aggregates affected by clinging, namely the material form aggregate affected by clinging, the feeling aggregate affected by clinging, the perception aggregate affected by clinging, the formations aggregate affected by clinging, and the consciousness aggregate affected by clinging. Throw out the tortoise. Abandon the five aggregates affected by clinging. Delve with a knife, thou wise one. This is the meaning. I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that that's probably a bad translation. Oh, I shouldn't say it like that. I disagree with the translation. The five aggregates affected by clinging, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with that. Ah, the forefeet and the head of a tortoise are similar to the five aggregates, right? Hence the... Uh, Hence the symbol. The five aggregates are who we are. Remember, I was talking about how the body is made up of made up of experience. Well, those those experience those four elements of experience are um, well, they're accompanied by four mental aggregates. So every time you have an experience of the softness of the cushion or the hardness of the floor that you feel, that's accompanied by four other things: the feeling, whether it be painful or pleasant or neutral. The, the recognition of it as soft or hard, the uh, forma mental formations that arise based on that of liking or disliking, identifying with it as this or that, big or small or hard, uh, too much, not enough, etc. That's uh, sankara and vijnana is the consciousness. So you'll notice that when I mentioned to you about the floor, you suddenly are conscious of it. That consciousness arises. With that consciousness are the other three mental aggregates. Altogether, there are five. Now, affected by clinging, why it's not important? The point, the point is these are clung to. The five aggregates are things that we cling to. The five aggregates of clinging, you could even say the five groups of things that we cling to. We cling to the aggregate that is rupa, or the whole set of form. We cling to hardness, we cling to softness. If it's too hard, you're not happy. That's clinging. If it's too, if it's soft, you're you you are happy. You like it and you cling to it. And you are partial towards it. You cultivate partiality towards it. If you feel a painful feeling, you're partial you're partial against it. If you feel a pleasurable feeling, you're partial towards it. You cultivate these partialities and these clingings. If you recognize something that's uh, similar to something that brought you pleasure, then you like it. If you recognize something as shiny as, as new and so on, then you like it. If you recognize something as... Um, no, if you recognize this as a microphone, you think, wow, that's a neat thing, it'll help me make sound and so on. Um, if you recognize some flowers, then 
you recognize them as flowers, then you like them because you remember that you like flowers and that they bring you pleasure, that they're sight and their smell. And then if they're ugly, if they're drooping, if they're dead, you recognize them as being dead and you don't like them because they look ugly. Our formations, we cling to formations while they're clinging in and of themselves. Liking and disliking, those are the formations. And we cling to consciousness. We cling to consciousness, wanting to see certain things, wanting to be conscious of certain things and not be conscious of other certain things. We want to be conscious of nice, beautiful sights and not be conscious of uh, ugly sights. We want to be conscious... <coughs> to see beautiful sights and not harmful sights, not ugly sights and sounds and smells and tastes and things and thoughts, all the pleasant ones. And this is the clinging, cling to our experience. So throwing out the tortoise, it doesn't mean we abandon, it doesn't mean we reject experience, but we throw out the clinging. We stop clinging to these things. Stop clinging to your experience. When you have something that's um, pleasant, you like it. When you have something that's unpleasant, you dislike it. But you teach yourself to be objective, to just experience. So here we are, here and now, sitting in this room, through the meditation practice, through our recognition of things as they are, we become objective, where we ex just experience things, not judging them as good or bad, just mm -hmm. seeing them as they are. This means throwing out the tortoise, abandoning the clinging to the five aggregates, or abandoning the five aggregates of clinging by no longer clinging to them. Which comes about just by objectivity. It doesn't come about by throwing them out. It comes about through wisdom. Remember, the delving here is not... Uh, the delving here, the knife here that you're using to delve is wisdom. Through the effort and the wisdom arises, you've come to see things as they are and no longer judge. Okay, next one. The butcher's knife and block is a symbol for the five cords of sensual pleasure, forms cognizable by the eye that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust, sounds cognizable by the ear, odors cognizable by the nose, flavors cognizable by the tongue, tangibles cognizable by the body that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. Throw out the butcher's knife and block. Abandon the five cords of sensual pleasure. Delve with the knife, thou wise one. This is the meaning. Beings desiring sensual enjoyment are chopped up by the butcher's knife of sensual desires upon the block of sensual object. Hmm. Interesting thing. So the butcher's knife and block is um, the idea being that these things set us up for death. Um, we're cutting straight to the point. <laughs> no, no kind of couching it in flowery, flowery language. The it, you kind of have to be this way because this is the most pernicious one. It's easy to want to give up pain. Right? Everyone will come to meditate because they have pain and suffering, but no one's going to come to meditate because life is too much fun. No one's going to come and say, you know, look, life is just too pleasurable. I really think there's a problem. I'm really enjoying myself too much, and I think that's wrong. Can you help me to overcome this? No one will come to meditation for that reason, which is which is actually a problem, because they're setting themselves up for great suffering. People only come on the downswing, which is really a shame. The person who the person who is cultivating or enjoying themselves, having the most fun, is actually in the most danger, because at any moment it could all come crashing down, and they will fall into suffering as a result. So this is the knife, the butcher's knife and block. It's like a guillotine. And the guillotine is knife that they put, they put your head down and you chop your head off. The knife comes, the blade comes down. It's hanging over our head and just ready to strike at any moment. This is a reference to the cords of sensual pleasure because they're conducive to addiction. 
seeing, hearing, smelling. All of our addictions come from these things. We want to see beautiful things, hear beautiful sounds. We get addicted to these things. Build up, build up, build up our addiction, and then we get depressed and upset when they don't come. We get, we grieve and we moan and we fight and we argue when we don't get what we want. So when we get rid of those, when we no longer try to find happiness there, and when we're just happy, we, we can just be happy. We can be just happy because we no longer depend upon things. If my happiness depends on this microphone, I'm only happy when the microphone is around. If it depends on this computer, then when the computer breaks down, I get upset. If your happiness depends on something that's experience-based, you're in trouble because you can't always have those experiences. Sometimes you have to have bad experiences. So it's not a denouncing of experience. It kind of is, but, but the problem isn't the experience. The problem is our dependence on them. If we were independent and just happy, then it wouldn't matter what we experienced. The piece of meat is a symbol for delight and lust. Throw out the piece of meat, abandon delight and lust. Delve with a knife, thou wise one. This is the meaning. Is this going to be like the crows, the birds? I think this is the birds. A piece of meat is uh, something that when you grab onto it, you're in trouble. Right? If you have a bunch of dogs, a pack of dogs and one piece of meat, are you going to have a lot of happiness or a lot of suffering? A lot of suffering. Yeah, a lot of fighting. Sensual desires, sensual, no, delight and lust are like this because when you delight in something, you give people the hook, you, or you set yourself up. If I want a, suppose I want a new computer because this one's broken down, then I've got to set myself up for, you know, how can I convince someone to get me a new computer? I scheme and, and plan and, and find a way to get this or that support or so on. Or maybe I'll just slip it into one of my Dhamma talks and mention how our computer is broken. <laughs> I'm horrible, aren't I? The computer's fine, actually. The mouse was a little bit weird there. But for example, so if you want a new car, then oh, you're setting yourself up for uh, for a great for a mortgage, right? And the car, car payments. What do they call it a mortgage? Lease. Lease. If you get a house, you have to get a mortgage on the house. Whenever when you want things, when you have delight and lust, it's like a piece of meat. It looks wonderful. I think, oh, good. And you take it up, other people start to bite you. Because just think, if if you don't want the computer, if 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 I don't go after the computer, if I don't not concerned about the, delighting in the computer, it doesn't matter to me whether it breaks down. If I I'm not worried about if I don't love my house and think how much how wonderful it is, then when it burns down, I'm not upset. When you lose the things, the point being, if the dogs don't pick up the piece of meat, they're fine. As soon as they go and pick up the meat, they get in big trouble. That's I think how it would just meant by there. The Naga serpent is a symbol for a bhikkhu who has destroyed the taints. Leave the Naga serpent. Do not harm the Naga serpent. Honor the Naga serpent. This is the meaning. This is an arahant. See seven note seventy five. We don't have note seventy five. Um, so a Naga means um, a dragon, really. Buddhists tend to know what Nagas are, but yeah, it is of a of a, a dragon. Definitely. Huh? I definitely agree. A lot of people say that it's just serpents, but it doesn't really fit what a dragon is. Yeah, fire-breathing serpent, intelligent. Yeah, it's not a snake. It's a naga, but you know, you don't see often people translating it as dragons, but that's probably the best way to... Sometimes they say royal serpent, but naga should be dragon. I don't see any other way, any other way of translating it. But you're right, you don't see that often as the translation. I think that's perfect English correspondent. Uh, so leave the Nagasura means there's nothing left to be, to be done. Once a, This is the goal, see. Someone asks, what is the goal of Buddhism? The goal is to destroy the taints, destroy the defilements. It means anything, any poison in your mind of lust or greed and, and anger and hatred, of ego and arrogance and conceit and so on and so on. <coughs> Once all of these things are gone, there's nothing left to do. You don't have any other task to do. Nothing, so it's like, don't 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 do anything there. This is fine. Point being, that's what that's the goal. The goal is to find the Naga serpent. Is to become free from the taints. That is what the Blessed One said. The Venerable Kumara Kasapa was delighted and satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words, as they almost always are.
So it's a simple sutta with some interesting similes and food for thought in our practice. Maybe we can recap. Now it's already 8 o'clock. I'll recap a little bit. Da, 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 da. So our practice is, is on the body, the anthill, and it's our being, basically. It's fuming by night and flaming by day. The Brahmin is our teacher, the Buddha. The wise one is us when we take up the meditation practice. The knife is wisdom that we use to delve our effort. We put out effort to gain wisdom. Effort is the meditation practice. The bar is ignorance, so we have to gain wisdom. We have to cut through the veil of ignorance to see things as they are. The toad is anger, basically. The fork is doubt. The sieve is the five hindrances. The tortoise is the five aggregates of clinging. The butcher's knife and block is desire and notice. Butcher's knife and block is the five strand, five, five senses, five sensual, five forms of sensual pleasure. The piece of meat is delight and lust, and the naga serpent is enlightenment. So getting through all these things that just a neat little sutta talking about the bad things and the good things. Just a chance for the Buddha to talk about various aspects of the path of good and bad. So I hope that was somehow enlightening. Let's click back to our uh, two stooges. And uh, thank you all for joining up. Joining, we have four viewers and we have a room full of people here who have blessed us with their presence. So that's all for the broadcast. Have a good night. Thanks for tuning in. And tomorrow we'll get on to another sit-down.